Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 520 with Charlie Gilkey. Charlie is sharing how to get unstuck and start finishing projects. You'll learn one, the magic number for projects, two, signs that a project truly matters to you, and three, when and how to say no to your family, friends, and bosses. You can find the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F520, or just expand the episode notes or description in your podcast app player and view the notes that way. Here's Charlie's story. Charlie Gilkey is an author, entrepreneur, and philosopher, Army veteran, and renowned productivity expert. He's the founder of Productive Flourishing, and Charlie helps professional creatives, leaders, and change makers take meaningful action on work that matters. His latest book is called Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done. Big thanks to Charlie for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Charlie. Charlie, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, thanks so much for having me. I am pumped to be here. Oh, well, I'm excited to talk about uh, starting and finishing and getting to done. And let's start with starting, actually. I understand you don't choose to start your year in January. How does that work? And, and what's the backstory here? Well, there are several things going on. And thanks for that question. Um, that's, a, that's a deep cut. Two things going on. One is the business cycle for the business that I'm in, or the year cycle starts actually in August with the back to school, back to, you know, back to work sort of thing. That's when everyone comes back online. It's like, hey, we got to get after it. And so that's a really important point for my business. And I've also learned that actually doing your yearly planning, if you're going to do it on the personal side in February, is a way better time to do it because it kind of lets you shake off the high of New Year's resolutions and all the things that go on there. And I think we're way too optimistic during that period of the year. And then, you know, if you pay too close attention to the goals you set then, it can be a really good way to like feel bad about yourself. But if you kind of wait until February, kind of around Groundhog's Day and you give yourself a redo, what I've learned is that we end up making way better sort of annual goals and resolutions during that period. So I have kind of two periods in which I do annual planning, but that's kind of par for the course for me and that I'm always recalibrating plans and working in it. Well, that's clever. Groundhog Day redo. And yeah, I'm thinking Bill Murray right now. Part of that was shot right near me uh, in Woodstock, Illinois. Fun fact. So yeah, that's a, that's a good way to think about it in terms of like the day and, and where you're going to to choose to start and why. So so thank you for that. Let's talk about the book Start Finishing. Uh, what's the big idea here? The big idea is that finished projects bridge the gap between your current reality and that life you want to live and that work you want to do. And so a lot of us have, you know, we have really big dreams and visions for ourselves. We have that idea of our best work or our best life. And a lot of times we can feel stuck and we don't quite know what to do. And it turns out that, again, it's those finished projects that bridge the gap. And I think it provides a bit of a different take on productivity and getting things done and sort of personal development, which either can be far too granular and focus on tasks or it can be far too lofty and focus on sort of vision and sort of the big view of your life. And the mess of life and the beauty of life 
is in this middle world of projects. Yes. Okay. Uh, indeed. The finished projects bridge the gap. And, and one thing I think I'm coming to learn is that almost finished projects don't. <laughs> and I'm thinking about all these instances in which it's like, you know, the vast majority of the hard work is is done, but it's not all the way finished and thus it doesn't turn into something. So I remember once, you know, we've got a multifamily home here and, and we're looking at, and we were trying to rent out one of the units and things were almost completely like, you know, renovated, cleaned, whatever, but there was like a bunch of cardboard boxes in the corner. And I think that prospective tenants can know that those won't be there when they move in. But nonetheless, I couldn't help but notice that every showing we did when the boxes were there did not result in an application. And those that we did with the boxes absent, totally cleaned up, did. And so it's sort of like almost done, doesn't pull it off for you. Uh, it just, but it, it's kind of encouraging in that it means that there's very little left to to get to finished project status. So th- those are those are my own musings on the finished project piece. Let, give me your take on that. Well, I love that, and it's I talk a lot in the book about displacement, which is the idea that anything you do displaces a practical infinity of things that you can do, or you know you can't do one thing or you can't do multiple things at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, barring simple things like doing the laundry while listening to a podcast. But when it comes to this significant work that we need to do, what I call best work, I'm going to call those things that really light us up and are part of the matrix of meaning making that we are in, we tend to only be able to do one thing at a time. And the frustrating thing about those half-finished projects is that they sucked up all of the time that could have been going to something else, but they're not bridging that gap. They're not doing the work that they're supposed to do to power your life. And it would be like investing a hundred bucks a month for however long you want to do. Let's just say it's 12 months and you don't get the return on until the 13th month. And then you decide on the 12th month just to stop. And then everything disappeared, right? It's like, you've already sunk in all of that money. You've already sunk in all of that time and you don't get the reward for it just because you decided to jump to something else. So absolutely. And, and one of the things that I really stress in the book is that we should really be focusing on throughput and not load. And by that, I mean, I think we commit too quickly to ideas and end up carrying too many projects around with us and too many things that we're not going to be able to finish. And so if you make that commitment to where this week you're going to like, I'm going to do the 17 projects and you only do three, well, you've carried the additional 14. And I think, unfortunately, what we do is, you know, we say, well, this week, I overestimated this week, so I'm going to do 12. And then we do three projects. Well, it turns out that if we just focus on the three that matter most and we get through them faster, not only is it just about efficiency, but it's about that momentum that you can build with these finished projects. And so, depending upon where you want where you want to take this, Pete, a lot of times when I tell people like to focus on three to five projects, the first thing that they'll do is be like, I can't, I got all the things, but let's do a reality check here. Are you actually finishing those things or is it just a continual state of juggling and a continual state of, you know, sort of commenting about the status of a project? but not actually moving that project forward? Or is it that continual like story that you're going to get to it, but you don't? And um, I could just say, you know, over the decade I've been doing this work with people, there's momentum, there's more pride, there's more joy, and there's more results just from coming from focusing on fewer things, getting them done, and moving to the next thing. Yeah, but I, that's well said with regard to load, because I mean, you could you could feel that in the word itself. It's like, I am shouldering a burden, a load, you know, like a, like a camel or an ox. Like there's a lot of things on my plate, on my back here. And, and, and so when you identify, these are the things that we're actually going to sail right through here. We're good to go. And, and it's intriguing that when you mentioned three to five, you're getting pushback because I guess I'm thinking about, you know, Jay Papazan, who we had on the show with the one thing. It's like, oh man, you're being lenient. You're giving them three to five instead of just one. So let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, why do you think that's perhaps the magic number there, three to five projects? It's partially because I, you know, enough studies, both with my own clients and work and, you know, external studies show that that's about the limit of which we can do. And I, I want to pause here. I love Jay's work. And I find that most people can't just commit to one thing because when you commit to one thing, I think you often forget. Well, there's different ways of understanding his book and, and the message. 
So that's one thing to talk about. I want to make room for projects that are not just economic projects. So for me, anything that takes time, energy, and attention is a project. And so, you know, cleaning the, you know, finding a place for those cardboard boxes you've mentioned, that very well could be a project, right? Yeah, that's why it wasn't done. That's why it wasn't done. It was a few multiple steps. There's too many to just shove in the alley. So I had yeah. to take another, do something else there. Yeah, yeah you got to find out where they are <laughs> and you got to sort and you got to, you know, figure out which other closet, you know, you're going to put them in and you open that closet and realize, oh crap, there's something in there that's got to go somewhere else. And so it's kind of like a shell game with stuff sometimes, right? But also getting married, getting divorced, having kids moving across the United States, getting a new job, like all of those things are projects. And unfortunately, we tend to prioritize economic projects or creative projects or work projects, however you want to say that. And we try to squeeze the work of our lives and the leftover, time left over from economic projects, and we're just not getting to it. And so, again, not to go overly critical of the one thing, but it's like we are not just work-related people. Like when our one thing in life, our one thing at work is one of the many things that we might want to attend to. We might also need to attend to our aging parents that we need to help transition into elder care, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that in the conversation, you know, Jay mentioned, hey, what's the one thing within like a context or a domain, like the one thing in my marriage, the one thing in my business, et cetera. Et cetera. And so I think mm-hmm. people misunderstand his message in that way. And so I just wanted to say, like, we're actually super aligned in that way. But that's where we start saying the five projects or three to five projects. Yeah, you have to look across the domains of your life and not just pick the one thing and not just pick like one domain and say, I'm going to go all in on that. And so, for instance, right now, I'm in the middle of, you know, launching this book and doing the PR tour for this book. And it's a major project. I'm also in the middle of reintegrating back into my business after working on the book for so long. So that's another project. Um, I'm also getting back into the gym and working with a personal trainer. That's a project. So that gets me three. But anyways, you asked why three to five? I think that many lets you invest in the buckets of your life that matter without spreading yourself too thin. Two, I think it's when we look at sort of the cognitive load that we humans can bear, you know, you, you, we sort of heard the five plus or minus two, I think it's now four plus or minus two of like the things we can remember. Yeah. Well, when you have a fewer number of projects and you can always rattle off what you're working on, it turns out you don't need a super complicated productivity system or app to help you with that. You can just always sort of have those things front of mind. And the last thing is every one of the projects, another way of thinking through this, and every one of the projects that you carry, they need fuel. And I talk you know, in the book about focus blocks, which are 90 to 120 blocks of time where you can sit down and make substantive progress on things. So if it's a creative project, it might be that time where, let's say it's writing, where you actually are able to sit down, get some good words in, lean into the project, get out of the project and wrap it up. Like, But it doesn't have to be creative work. It can be, again, going back to that garage. A lot of times we don't end up cleaning the garage because we look at it and it's like, Oh, I think I can just move it around, but you know that it's going to take you three to four focus blocks because you got to figure out where everything goes and do the organizing. And because we don't schedule that time, we know we won't be able to make any meaningful progress. So we don't actually start. And so when we look at sort of the three to five projects, it's like, how many of these focus blocks do you have in your life and in a week that you can allocate towards these things? And no focus blocks equals no momentum. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm seeing how the pieces are coming together. So I've got my three to five projects. I've got focus blocks for 90 to 120-ish minutes. And then I'm allocating particular focus blocks towards particular projects in order to get momentum. So I understand you've got a full-blown nine-step method. So I think we're already getting into a couple of them. How about we sort of get the full view here? Yeah, so the full nine-step method would be, well... There are different ways we can say this, but where people often will fall down is that they go immediately from idea to working on it. And that that's really not a great way to do it because we don't do ideas. We do projects. And so we have to do some work to convert that idea. But before we can get there, in chapter two, of the, well, one of the steps is really getting clear about the obstacles that are in the way from you doing this life-changing work that we're talking about. And if you don't start with looking at that, the first thing that you'll do is choose an idea, start working with it, and then see all of a sudden that you know, you're know you just upside down with it and you can't go forward with it and sort of working backwards. So it's a root cause approach. So the first step is getting in touch with some of those root causes that keep that gap between our current reality and the life we want to live. So sort of the second 
sort of step is to pick an idea that really matters to you. And that seems like obvious, except for what matters to us is oftentimes not the first things that we'll pick because of fear, because of, you know, the seeming difficulty. And we end up choosing low-hanging fruits, or we end up choosing other people's priorities. And then when we get into the messy middle or towards the end of the project, we don't get anywhere. And that's largely because at the end of the day, that idea did not matter enough to us. It didn't have supply the amount of meaning and sort of commitment juice that we needed it to. And so there's just a certain point and sort of imagine this lever of like at past a certain point of difficulty in grit. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the amount of emotional, internal, emotional buy-in and and sort of, you know, spirit in that project, the difficulty of it is going to win. Understood. Right. And so you you have to pick an idea that matters enough for you to invest the life force that it's going to take to push through it. Okay, certainly. And I think that's that's well said with regard to just because you're doing it doesn't mean that it matters to you very well could have chosen it because you you passed up the, the bigger things out of fear or ooh, that just sounds hard. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds hard. And I, I want to pause here because over the last few decades, I think we've lost a lot of grit and we've sort of baked into some sort of talent myth that like if it's hard, it's not for you. Because if, you know, we look at all the prodigies and the people that seem to do things super easily and it's like, oh, they've got that talent and the people that have the talent, they should go do those things. And if you don't have that talent, maybe you go find something else that's easier for you to do. Right. And what that ends up doing for a lot of us is that when we start something and it gets difficult, we sort of encoded that maybe that's a sign that we're doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe it's a sign that there's something else that I should be doing because it shouldn't be this hard. And my whole point is like, first off, if it's worth doing well, it's worth doing badly in the beginning. Yeah. It just bottom line, if it's worth doing well, it's worth doing badly in the beginning. And second off, in almost all these cases of these effortless talent displays that we see, it's a lot of hard work and cultivation of those people behind the scenes. So they just have a certain amount of button seat time that we don't have. And so I want people to orient themselves so that when they see something's difficult or when they see, well, let me say it this way. I talk in the book about thrashing and thrashing is sort of the meta work and emotional flailing and quote unquote research that you'll do to push an idea forward, but that doesn't actually push an idea forward, right? Um, It's just thrashing and flailing. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is we don't thrash about things that don't matter to us. Like no one has a mini existential crisis about doing the laundry or taking the trash out. (laughs) There's no like, why am I the right person to do it? Is now the right time? What if I'm not good enough? It's like you do it or you don't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. But when it comes time to some of these, some of these best work projects, which is what I call these life changing projects that, that really only you can do and that change the world and, and really phenomenal ways. Those are the ones where we'll have all of those sort of mini crises. And those are the ones where we'll start wondering if we've got it, what it takes and so on and so forth. And so it turns out that the more it matters to you, the more you'll thrash. And so Mm -hmm. it's a really good sign when you're feeling that feeling of like, wow, this is like, not just that it's daunting because you can take on a project that doesn't matter, right? And it could be daunting, but you can think of like, wow, like, I don't know if I've got what it takes. I don't know if I'm ready for this. Those are actually really good signs that the project matters to you. Because if it didn't, you wouldn't be feeling that way. Well, yeah, that is, well, that's one worth sitting on with and, and remembering because you want it to come near, to mind when, when that feeling occurs again. It, it, indeed, so, it, wow, so, yeah, so many implications. When you're experiencing that, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I have what it takes. It's, it's indicative of that's something you care about a lot or that thought would not have occurred to you at all. Like, I don't know if I've got what it takes to, and it's not just about how how challenging it is, because you might say, but I don't know if I have what it takes to take out the trash every day. <laughs> the take out the trash challenge, you know? Yeah. It's like, just sort of says, that's dumb. I don't feel like bothering. So, yeah. And, and I, I've, I've often had this thought, I've, I've said it to my wife numerous times, like when I'm feeling frustrated by, by something, I think, well, you know what? It'd be a lot easier if I didn't care so much you know it's like yeah. if, if i didn't care if my my clients were getting great results in roi from our trainings then it just be like whatever but i do and thusly i get a little bit you know worked up associated with if folks are you know doing the exercises and and understanding and connecting with the stuff 
Absolutely. It's kind of like envy as a compass. And by that, I mean, we're not envious of other people when they don't have something that we want. We are only envious when someone has something that we actually care about. And unfortunately, we try to wash out the envy. We try to wash, wash it out. But for me, I'm like, uh-huh, maybe let's pause a little quick, a little bit and say, what is it in this moment, in that sort of feeling that you have that's telling you that something matters? And what are you going to do about it? Right. As opposed to just pretending like you shouldn't feel it. Like you like what you like, you know, and you value what you value. And that's one of those like learning to center those fundamental truths and that it's perfectly fine to like what you like and to value what you value. And you have permission to do that. Then let you say, you know what? Like that, that man with the shoes on over there, those shoes are really kicking, man. I love those shoes. I wish I had them. So what is it about that? And and what do you want to do to address that? Maybe you decide later on that, nah, maybe I was just being materialistic. Or maybe, just maybe, you like the shoes. And that's enough for you to say, you know what, I'm going to do something about that, meaning I'm either going to go buy it or if I can't afford it, it's worth it to me to do the work that I need to do to exchange my labor for the money I need to get those things. And that is a choice that I don't think we allow ourselves to really sink into a lot of times unless they are socially approved values and likes, in which case, like, it's kind of a given that we get to. So, like, many people, I know this is kind of straying into personal finance land, but, like, many people don't question the value of owning a home. Mm, yeah, because it's one of those givens. Like that's what just what you do. You go to school, you get a job, you get a partner, you buy a house, right? And so deciding not to buy a house and deciding to be a renter for the rest of your life because you realize that three to five percent of your of the cost of your home is going to be spent in maintenance, and you know those type of things are generally like like that becomes important. But a lot of people don't give themselves permission to say, you know what, this whole home buying thing, not something I care so much about. I care more about freedom. I care more about that. And again, I'm not trying to make a strong case for for that particular economic choice. I'm just trying to say there's a lot of decisions like that, that we default to the socially approved cues and unfortunately end up, you know, living our lives doing work that we would rather not do to get stuff that we really don't want and then miss out on this one precious life that we have in front of us and the way we could have lived it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's adding up and, and resonating there in, in each of those those components in terms of this is just what you do versus you've given some some real thought to it. And when it comes to envy, I think it's also intriguing to look at, see if there are some finer distinctions because you got my wheels turning in terms of, so I saw this Netflix documentary about Bill Gates and I, and I had some envy, but I don't at all have envy for Elon Musk. <laughs> right. And so here's those two super rich people who are innovating. And so, but there's a distinction and, and that, that is sort of rich fodder for potential insight. So it's like, where do you have envy and where is there a similar situation where you don't? And then we're really homing in on something. Yeah. So what does that envy tell you about your values? That would be the question that I would be right. And where does the lack of envy in other places not, you know, do the same thing. So again, these are really good tools. And the thing about it is, is so much of, especially productivity, but I'll say the broader sort of personal development, we approach it from a headspace and like a thinking space. But when it comes down to actually doing the work that changes lives, changes our lives, changes other people's lives and having the courage and being able to set up the boundaries, it's always going to come back to your heart space. It's always going to come back to like stuff that really matters. And so I encourage people to actually steer with that as opposed to getting caught into all the things that are sort of in that headspace of what you should do. And just while I'm on that, just about any time you're telling yourself you should do something, pause. Because usually what you're telling yourself is that there's some external standard that is a guideline for what you ought to be doing. Where I want you to pause and say, but is that really true for me? Is it really true that I should, that, that that's the right thing for me to do? And sometimes we use should in the case of given who I am and what I care about, this is the thing that, that I need to do. But I've learned so oftentimes, so many times that like we only use the word should 
when it's an external rule, an external guide, and when it's our own sort of compass, we say, I get to, or this matters to me, or I want to, or this is meaningful. Like we use all sorts of words that are different than the should word. Does that make sense, Pete? Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I've been thinking about should a lot lately in terms of, I guess, when I see or hear should, I get very curious as well in terms of what, what do you, you really mean by that. And I find often should, all it really means is if one were to invest additional time, energy, money, you know, resource in this domain, there would be some kind of a benefit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like you said, with regard to opportunity cost, well, is that really worthwhile? And I'm really intrigued when I hear it with regard to people talking about TV or Netflix. Like, oh, have you, oh, have you, have you seen the last latest season of this? And they say, oh no, I should really watch it. And I'm thinking, man, really, should you? Yeah. I think, man, I think you got the right idea, and I'm the one who should <laughs> watch less Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stop shooting on yourself is a long way of saying it, right? Certainly. If you wanted to do it, you would have watched the show already, right? If it really mattered to you, it just turns out that. In the, you know, I talk a lot about cage matches, whether it's a priority cage match or a project cage match. And that's just a homage to my bringing, my upbringing in the 80s of, you know, professional wrestling, right? Where the basic idea, if you've never seen this, is like a bunch of competitors getting to the ring and the strongest one, some way or the other, ends up throwing everybody else out or, or beating them into submission. So I know, terrible metaphor for this particular context. But there are certain priorities and certain things that they're always going to win that cage match, right? If you are a parent and something comes up for your, about your kids, you're going to displace almost everything else, like to make sure that their needs are attended to. And so what I want more of us to do is to look at all the OPP, the other people's priorities, not, not the naughty by nature OPP song, but Hey, that's also a great song, right? I want to look at everyone else's priorities and say, you know what? Why and how are those more important than my own? Because you can be that person that runs around trying to fill everybody else's priorities and end up exhausted and depleted and frustrated and still not be able to appease everyone and fill their buckets. Or you can say, you know what? I can't be everything for everyone. I'm choosing for this smaller set of priorities to be who I am and to live in the way, live and work and and allocate my time in a way that that really instantiates those values. And that does mean that there are a lot of people who might be mad at you. There might be a lot of people who decide not to be friends with you, or there might be a lot of other, like there might be some social fallout for that. But again, look forward into a decade. Would you rather have done the things that really are going to power the type of life you want to live? Or just continue to maintain other people's, you know, projects and priorities. You know, that's great. And, and while we're here, I'm just rolling with it. What are your pro tips on saying no? Pro tips on saying no. It depends on where it's coming from. So I got to I gotta start with that. Obviously, if your boss walks into the door, walks into the office, is like, hey, I got a new project and priority for you. Like, be careful about saying no to that because you may not get to say yes to the job tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's there's some context there. And even with bosses, and I've had to do this in the military back when I was in the army, right? Where it's like you get handed this project or you get handed this mission. You're like, okay, well, I can do this, but it may displace some of these other priorities that you have for me and that we've already talked about. So do you want me to do this instead of that? Or do we like, what's the priority conversation here? And that I think always returning to in sort of, especially the work environment to priorities is a good way to talk about it because you're not saying like, Mm -hmm. screw you. I don't care. You're saying I'm here to do, you know, I'm here to do a certain job or I'm here to make sure that I'm providing the best value to this team that I can. We've already discussed these other ways in which I could provide that value. Now there's this new thing. Is this better than that? Right. And that's a good conversation that a lot of teams can have, even with a lot of people can have with their boss. I think when it's with your friends and family, first off, my observation is that we spend too little time talking to friends and family about what actually matters to us. Mm-hmm. And so we end up negotiating a bunch of trivia or trivial things. Um, you know, you get invited to go to the club or you get invited to go to watch the football game on Saturday or you get invited to all these sort of things or you get expected to like, hey, can you watch my kid today? Or, you know, can you come over? And there's never been that talk of like, you know, actually Saturday is the day that I spend in community service. And that's when I'm down at the soup kitchen every Saturday, because that's super important to me, right? We haven't established 
our priorities first. And so we're always negotiating, you know, what matters on the backside of things. So, so step one is to have more intentional conversations with your friends and family about things that matter to you, the projects you're working on and, and how they fit into this life that you want to live. And that way, when you do get asked to do something or requested to do something, there's a pre-existing conversation about some things that matter or not. And, and it changes the conversations because the people around you understand that it's not like you were sitting at home on that Saturday evening just looking for something to do. Right, yeah. Right? You had these other plans for yourself and other things that, that truly matter. And so, it, it does help with that conversation. The second way that I would – the second thing that I would look at on this one would be to where it's a resonant request, meaning it's from someone who can legitimately make that request. And it's something that in general, like you're open to doing it, but you perhaps can't do it right now, is always provide that alternative. It's like, you know, I'm sorry that I can't do that that day because I have some pre-existing commitments. Is there a way that I can do that Wednesday or Friday or this other period of time? Because I, I, what you're requesting from me, I actually do care about and I care about the relationship that we're in here. That particular time is not the best time. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that I would say is, and this goes back to talking about things that matter and, and, and being honest with your friends and, and family is if there are certain things that you're being requested to do and they don't resonate and they aren't something you're ever going to do, don't BS people, right? And be like, oh yeah, I'll get to it. Or yeah, it sounds great. Or we'll have coffee in three months. If you know that you don't want to have coffee with three months, like, like avoid that, right? <laughs> avoid setting that sort of precedent up. And I know that seems perhaps obvious and maybe it seems hard, but I think too many people are not honest with the people around them for fear of rejection or for fear of becoming a social pariah or whatever that is. And we end up negotiating a lot of things that if we were just being forthright with folks, um, we wouldn't have to be negotiating. Charlie, I have no interest in drinking coffee with you. Hey, I got it. Cool. That's not true, Charlie. I think you'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, how does one say that? How does one say I'm not interested in having coffee? Yeah. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Because yeah, I think that's kind of what you're saying. This ain't a, hey, in a few months, you know, when things quiet down, it's it's like, that's kind of what you mean is that just fundamentally is not worth doing to you. Yeah, that's a tricky one, right? Well, here's what I'll say. Very rarely do I have someone out of the blue who doesn't know me just ask me to go for coffee, mm-hmm. right? So typically it's a, it's in the context where they know I got a lot of stuff going on. And so I could say, you know, Oh, I'm going to have a hard time or what I will normally say is, Hey, especially if I don't know them and I really don't want to have coffee, like, you know, what's your thought there? What, what are you thinking? And this may just be peculiar to my line of work because I am a coach and things like that. If it comes up to one of those things where like, I love to have coffee because I want to pick your brain about something. Then I can say, Hey, Hey Pete, I'd love to have that conversation. I am a professional coach. And the best way for us to have that conversation would be under this, under this sort of structure. Are you open for that conversation? And basically what that's saying in, in, in some way or without being a, a butthole about it is one, it ain't free. It ain't free. <laughs> and two, if it matters to you, like if it matters for you enough to do it, then let's have that conversation. But for me to show up and do that for free, like, again, that's displaced other people who pay me to do this. Right. Certainly. Yeah. And so on that note, I have a certain amount of time that I could just think of like as service to the world and community service and things like that. And so There are some people where I'm like, you know what, that's totally be something that I would pay, like someone would pay me to do. But in this circumstance, I just feel called that this is a conversation that I want to be in. And so I'll do it. Right. But again, I don't get a lot of a lot of that. I know women actually get a lot more requests for coffee. And it's kind of one of those things. Are they requesting you to be in coffee to pick your brain, which is basically that conversation we were just having, Pete? Or are they wanting to establish a friendship? And so I think largely speaking, the, the best way to say no sometimes is to say, let's let's determine what we're actually trying to do. If you want to avoid that tendency to say yes too quickly, and this does seem to contradict what I was saying a little bit earlier, your go-to is always, let me check my schedule and see what projects I have and see how I can make that work, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, say, let me get back to you in a day or so. And then that at least gives you enough time to like not overcommit yourself, but also think about how you're going to disengage from that. 
Understood. Thank you. Well, Charlie, we got a lot of good stuff here. I had a big list going in. You've distinguished three different ways projects get stuck, and I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah. So can you can you give us what are these three categories and, and how do we deal with those? Yeah. I Can I get a three and a half here? Oh, uh, 3.5. Yeah. 3.5. Because <laughs> I kind of want to talk about the red zone on this one. Okay. Because the red zone is it's a a metaphor appealing to American football, where you know as you get in that last twenty yards of of the drive, a lot of teams will fumble it, or a lot of teams will screw up in that last twenty yards, and then end up in a field goal situation or, or in a turnover situation. And the reason you end up in a red zone is because there's such tight space that everything working against you doesn't have to spread itself so thin. And so projects can get stuck because in that red zone where you're in that last sort of 3% that seems to take as long as a full 97% before. And a lot of that is just about, again, that's when your perfectionism is going to come up. That's when your procrastination is going to come up. That's when all of the implications of the scoping goal creep start coming up. And so just understand that that's a normal part of the process. And in the book, I do give some ways to work through the red zone. But part of it is doubling down at the end. And not not thinking that you're just going to be able to slide in home. So I'm, I'm being super quick there because I'm conscious of time. Mm-hmm. The other three sort of ways project gets stuck. So there are cascades, there are log jams, and there are tar pits. Cascades are when you have a series of projects that you got to do step A before you do step B before you do step C. And step A gets behind. So step B gets behind. So step C gets behind. I mean, you might have a whole cascade of those. And at a certain point, I think we've all been in that where it, you start spending more time trying to keep your projects up to date and communicating with people about those projects than just getting those projects done in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. And they just keep slipping on you. And so the the trick of solving the cascade is you actually have to clip both ends of the cascade. You have to stop new projects coming in and... Um, and a lot of times you have to look at those projects that are backed up and start deferring them, start dropping them, and start focusing on getting the ones that you can through so that you get it going again, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't just focus on the new projects. Like no, So there are times Pete, where people will come to me and they'll tell me what they're doing. It's like, all right, so first thing is we're on a new project diet, right? You don't get to take on any new projects until we get these ones done because we don't have any space to add anything anyways, Right. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be a frustrating conversation for both of us three weeks later because you're going to tell me I didn't make any progress on it. And I ask you why because you didn't have time, so on and so forth. So let's not do that. Right. New project diet. So you got to sort of clip both ends. Once you get enough of those projects going, then maybe start accepting new projects back into the pipeline. And how that might work in a work context is again talking to your boss and being like, look, here's what's happening. I'm not able to get any of these projects done because of the rate that this is coming. I need two weeks or I need a week where I can just focus on getting these things caught up. Here's my plan for that. Right. Is that all right with you? Right. And a lot of times when faced between you not getting something done and you getting something done, bosses and teammates would much rather you get something done. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's not as hard of a conversation as as people make it. You just have to admit that the amount of inputs that are coming in exceed the, the, your ability to put them in the output mode. Right. And that's a hard conversation for a lot of us to have, but having that conversation after four months of struggling doesn't do you any favors, right? If you see that, you know, you might as well get ahead of it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about today is about taking the hard parts or maybe the pain parts of getting stuff done and putting them on the front side of things. Because the idea is that like at some point, if you're going to be falling behind and over committing and your projects are going to be stacking up on you, there's a certain amount of like pain that that's going to cause. We know that. Right. And so it's not necessarily avoiding the pain. It's can you put some of the pain at the beginning of it so that you don't have to pay so much of it later on. Right. Mm-hmm. So cascades, that's how you handle cascades. Log jams are when you have too many projects competing for the same amount of time. This is the classic case where you have five deadlines on Friday and you start looking at all the work it would take to do those deadlines. There's no way you can do them all at the same time. So it's different than the, than the cascade because cascade, you can kind of think of like projects stacked back to back. A log jam is like projects stacked on top of each other. And there's just a certain amount. It's kind of like trying to push the golf ball through the, through the garden hose. It doesn't work, right? So with a log jam, Some of it is similar in the sense of like a no new project diet will help, 
But you really have to get real about like which of those projects that are trying to compete for that same amount of time have to be done. Like if you don't do them, you'll get fired or it will cause a lot of pain and which ones are nice to do. And those nice to do ones or would be good to be get done are the ones that get deprioritized. So you can focus on getting those ones that will get you in hot water done. And then you can sort of reestablish the flow of your projects again. Uh And the last one is a tar pit. And I've learned this for a lot of creative projects, but a tar pit is when that project, like you sort of touch it a little bit. And then the second you let it go, it starts sinking in a tar pit in, in like, you know, one of those Jurassic tar pits and gets stickier and deeper and deeper. And then not only do you have to work to pick it up, you have to work to pull it out of it all over again. So if you've ever stuffed one of those projects in like, you know, the mental or spiritual or literal closet, you know what I'm talking about. It's so hard to resurrect those things. And then once you do, the second you let it go, it starts sinking back in there. And so the thing about tar pits is a lot of times it's some layer of fear that keeps that thing hiding in the background, or there's some deep sort of emotion around it. And you've got to get clear about what that is before you get back into that project. Because if you don't address it, the same pattern of it sinking deeper and deeper is going to keep happening. And then the other thing about tar pits, projects in the tar pit, is you want to make sure to give it enough time, enough of those focus blocks that I've talked about, that you can go ahead and clear all of the muck and get some significant progress on it. Because I'll tell you what, there are a few things better than seeing one of those tar pit projects and figuring out it actually does still matter to you. You've just been daunted or overwhelmed or scared by it. And then just knuckling down for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, getting it done and being like, you know what? Like, it's done. It's out of my, it's out of my soul. It's out of my, it's out of my emotions, out of my brain. And I can move on to the next thing, feeling so much more buoyant and not just weighed down by that, by that project. That's just sort of haunting me from the closet. And can you give us some examples of, of projects that often fall into the, the tar pit category? Yeah. So creative projects and creative broadly speaking. So if you want to write a book, yeah, that can be a tar pit project. If you want to, you know, if you're a musician, you've been meaning to write an album, those fall into the tar pit pretty quickly because it can be challenging to bear your soul in the ways that it takes to do that type of creative work. A common tar pit project that I've seen from people, I, I haven't had this problem yet because of the age of my parents, but it's when you end up with heirlooms and sentimental items that you inherit from your parents when they pass. They end up in garages and closets where you just can't get in there. And you can't figure out what to do with your mom's baby shoes that she gifted to you for some reason. And so those types of projects and anything around clearing out the uh, material belongings or material items that exist from relationships. So it could be that you have that box you know, I know I know of a few of my female friends that have boxes of letters and cards from boyfriends they had in high school, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, okay, so what's that about? But it's getting in there and figuring out what to do with it and, and things like that can be a total tar pit. For a lot of folks, financial stuff, you know, getting your taxes in order, figuring out where all your money has gone, is going, might go. Um, anything around money can be one of those tar pit projects where it's just like, you know, I want to get in it. I get in there, I poke around a little bit, but I don't actually make the investment. I don't actually buy the insurance. I don't actually do the thing that I need to do, right? Those tend to be classic sources of tar pits. And what else? I I think those are three pretty good cases of of that. Okay, that's lovely. Thank you. Well, tell me, Charlie, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I know we're wrapping things up, but I wanted to talk briefly about success packs because it's a game changer for people. And success packs are just the group of people that you put around yourself and your project that really help you figure out how to go. I would normally talk a little bit more about this, but the thing about success packs is they help you convert how problems into who solutions. And it, you know, when you use them, it takes a lot of that overload that we can feel, that overwhelm that we can feel about having to have it all figured out ourselves and all the work that we might do and feeling alone and just realizing that we have a team of people that we can reach out to for different reasons. And so whenever you're wanting to do work that matters for you, like before you start making heavy plans, before you start jumping headlong in there, think about the group of people that you would want to put around you that will be your advisors, that will be your helpers, There will be the people who benefit from the projects and there will be your guides, 
so that, again, you're not stuck doing this type of work alone. Understood. Thank you. So now tell me about uh, favorite quote, something you find inspiring. This one's from Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching. And it goes, I'll give this version of it. Because the master is aware of her faults, she is faultless. Hmm. And the idea there goes that because she's honest about her limitations and constraints and who she is, those limitations, constraints, and and character quirks don't end up tripping her up and making her life harder than it needs to be. Understood. And so I love that because I think a lot of times we don't want to talk about those constraints and limitations and challenges as if, you know, it's kind of like when... People are like, well, we don't want to talk about the hard things because then it makes them real. But I'm like, if your arm is broken, like you talking about your arm being broken, doesn't break it. It, It's already broken, right? What are you going to do about it? And so I love that one because whenever I'm one, it allows a lot of room for humility, but it also allows a lot of room for hope at the same time. Mm, Yes, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I've been really geeking out on the marshmallow test and especially that they got it wrong. Turns out that that was largely when they when they did the the research on the data and they tried to run it again. What they found out it was actually a determination of someone's social status was actually what was determining their ability to hold out or not. And the reason I'm super pumped about that finding is one, having grown up as a poor kid and just seeing how different realities manifest because of just where you grew up on the opportunity divide. Um, It gave me a lot of hope there, but it also reminds me that we need to be super careful about the judgments we make on people and that we need to dig deeper when we're starting to see some of these types of trends. And so, again, it was one of those big things that's largely, you know, grit determined what you would be able to do in life. And it turns out that where you started in life determined how much grit you may have. And that means in some ways Grit is a muscle that we can all work on, and our future is not necessarily predicated by where we grew up, even though that has a super strong influence on it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Well, since I gave the quote from it, I probably should say The Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? The tool that's popping out to me is the Alpha Smart Neo 2 which is a late 90s word processor. It's basically a keyboard with like a you know, LCD screen on it. And it's really helpful for writing when you've been super distracted or when you've got a lot going on. It's actually what I wrote about 95% of start finishing on. And when it comes to quality words and volume of words, I have yet to find a better solution than the Alpha Smart Neo. Fascinating. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit? That would have to be my morning routine. And so I drink tea and meditate for at least 25 minutes in the morning. And that 25 minutes sets up the rest of the day. And there's a market difference when I don't have that 25 minutes than when I do or when I don't prioritize it. So that is the habit that keeps all the other habits going. Okay. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. I don't have a really good one, but what resonates is is a quote But something that a lot of readers have said about this book is really commenting that the part about them not being uniquely defective really stands out. So I I can say it in a quote form. So in the book I talk about in, in chapter one, I just remind people that, I mean, we're not uniquely defective. We're not fated to be unable to get our stuff together. And, you know, we're not fated to always be on a struggle bus. And I think that's such an important point because a lot of times, we approach really important stuff from a frame that like there's something uniquely defective about us. It's going to keep us from being successful. Mm-hmm. And when you let go of that belief, when you let go of that way of orienting yourself to the world and you see that to quote Marie Forleo, like everything is figure outable and you are fundamentally able to change if you will yourself to do it, it opens up the world of possibilities. And so, yeah, that's the one I would put down is like, you're not uniquely defective. All right. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? So if you're interested in the book, go to startfinishingbook.com. That's all one word, startfinishingbook.com. If you're interested in the broader body of work that I've got, you can find it at productiveflourishing.com. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. In the next full week that you have, like reach into that closet of your soul where you put one of those projects 
that really matter, one of those ideas that really matter that will make your work better, that will make your, your colleagues work better, that will make your workplace better. And start thinking about like, how can I spend at least two hours this week bringing that idea to life and turning it into a project? Start with that two hours and just if that's all you've got is two hours a week, better to work on that and make work awesome than to leave it in there waiting for a better time. All right, Charlie, this has been so much fun. Thank you and and good luck in all of your finishing uh, projects. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. I really like Charlie's take on economic projects and how they can really dominate. And hey, the show's called How to Be Awesome at Your Job. So I think it really pays to invest big in that domain. At the same time, uh, there, there sure is more. And it's funny, lately I've been thinking, boy, I just don't feel that motivated. Re- what's going on? It's like, I'm not motivated to do anything. But as I look deeper, it's like, no, wait a second. I'm just not motivated to pursue a number of, of economic projects. You know, the podcast is fun and cool. You guys rock. Uh, the guests are really fun to talk to. But there's a number of other things. I'm just sort of not feeling it as much. And that could be okay because I really pushed hard on some economic projects previously. The days are short in Chicago with uh, not a ton of sunlight. Uh, there's a lot of cozy, you know, sweaters and holiday time and and kids and, and family things. And, and I'm quite motivated to do those things. So, so Charlie helped me out in, in terms of like, it's not that I'm super unmotivated at this moment in life. It's just, I'm, I'm unmotivated a little bit in, in that domain, but there are many more domains. And I think it's, it's helpful to sort of check in with yourself, see what's going on. And, and if there are other uh, project areas that really do have your, your time and heart and attention, uh, you're uh, thrashing a bit because they're, they're meaningful to you there. And if there's been a change um, and if, for a, a bit of a season. So anyway, thanks, Charlie. That was cool. Hope you got some useful tidbits like I did. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to albums we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F520. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Roger Firestein. He's got some great perspectives on how you can create in a flash, generate lots of, of fun, useful, creative ideas uh, real quick. Hope to catch you there in peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.